You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tom Jackman, a criminal justice reporter here at The Post. We want to continue our focus on protecting public safety in America today. And so we have as our guest, the chief of the Dallas police force, Eddie Garcia. Chief Garcia, welcome to Washington Post Live. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Violent crime in, well, we hear about violent crime all over the country. It's up, things are bad. Violent crime in Dallas is down, dropped almost 6% over the past two years, and homicides have dropped almost 20%. Chief Garcia, what's working in Dallas? Uh, Well, I'll say, you know, a few things. Number one, I mean, what's working here in Dallas is the incredible incredible support that we receive. Uh, really from our city government, city leaders. Uh, there's uh, Mayor Johnson is incredibly supportive of this police department. Our city council is supportive. Our city manager is very supportive. And then we have amazing men and women uh, that sacrifice every day for the city. Uh, you know, we've come up and working with criminologists to devise a violent crime plan consisting of three parts of grid work and a hotspot policing, uh, place network investigations, uh, and then finally focused deterrence. And we can go into those if you'd like in a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, in the end, this vast support that we get from our community, uh, community members that want our officers engaged and want them present. Uh, and we work hard at that, um, you know, for our community to want us in their neighborhoods. I tell my officers all the time, and it's a precious gift. It's a precious gift to hear the words that we want more of you in our neighborhoods uh, and impacted impacted neighborhoods by violence. And so, you know, it's it's those things uh, coupled with, a, you know, with the plan uh, and amazing men and women. Uh, and raising morale in this police department and making officers feel uh, supported, uh, making honorable men and women know that they are valued uh, by both the administration, by the city, and by our community. And all those things together uh, have led to uh, drops in violent crime. You know, there's challenges and successes. There's no question about it. A lot of uh, agencies and departments and cities uh, see upticks in violence throughout the year, uh, but then balance those out. Uh, and so, you know, we know we don't do touchdown dances here in Dallas. We have a long way to go, uh, you know, and we have to we have to continue to do that. Well, let's talk about the plan. Uh, one of the things I read about was that you've divided the city into grids uh, so that you can see exactly where crime occurs and focus on those grids. And that you've learned in Dallas that only five percent of the grids produce a vast majority of the violent crime. So. How does your grid system work uh, in terms of how do you divide up the city and then how do you uh, attack it once you've figured that out? Yeah, well, you know, let me just start off by saying I think any police department, when it de- when it deals with violent crime, and that's why we have three pieces of this crime plan, we look at ourselves as the fever reducer. We're the Advil, we're the Tylenol, you take to reduce a fever, in this case, violent crime. We are not a cure to the illness of the of the underlying illness and it's important for us to remember that and that's why we work so uh, uh collaboratively with our community uh and uh and, and our groups and our nonprofits and things of that nature but i'll say uh, we divide the city of dallas into about 101,000 grids uh and we impact about 50 or at presently we're impacting about 64 grids in our city our grids and our grid work uh, in working with our criminologists from the university of texas san antonio's dr mike smith and rob tillier what we discovered again is that that small number of grids is responsible for a very large percentage of our, of our violent crime. And so by reducing those grids, we're able to reduce violent crime citywide. You know, to become a grid in the city of Dallas, you have to have led the city in incidents in the past 60 days in murder, aggravated assault, uh, or aggravated robbery. 
And so we treat those we treat those uh, areas uh, throughout the city uh, in two ways, uh, with uh, being present uh, and actually having officers just being visible in those areas. Uh, our grids, one of the one of the I guess you would call it unique or what have you, is when we talk about hotspots and grids. The one thing I've learned in in uh, working with my criminologist, it's not the hotspot itself. It's there's a hotspot within the hotspot. So our grids are about 330 by 330 feet, a little larger than a football field. So we consider that the epicenter of the of the hotspot. And so one visibility, and two using intelligence-led policing to root out the criminal element uh, that are that that lies in those grids. And we've seen in the last uh, you know since we've started the crime plan. Uh, we've uh, we've reduced violent crime in those grids anywhere from 40 to 60 percent, uh, and that has also helped then reduce the incidents that happen citywide when it comes to violent crime. You know, obviously, you know, a city's number one uh, tell uh, of violent crime, uh, and I know we talk about it often, and I know that murders and homicides, you know, get a lot, obviously, the attention. One life is too many. There was no question about it. But I think as police chiefs, what we look is the trend in uh, gun-related aggravated assault. And those incidents uh, and making sure that by reducing incidents you that will lead you to less victims and so again that's that's the primary focus of our grid work having said that understanding and recognizing that we are a fever reducer that's where the other parts of the crime plan come in uh but i'll say uh you know there is no crime plan that's going to work there is nothing that will work in a city if the morale of your officers isn't high uh if your officers don't feel valued uh if they don't feel appreciated um, you know, and if they don't feel, quite frankly, that you don't care about their wellness or well-being or the fact that they want to be police officers, nothing's going to work. Um, and so uh, oftentimes I tell individuals to make sure you have a finger on the pulse of the morale of your department before you launch something, uh, because without that, um, you're, it's going to lead to failure. So what goes on in these grids? Uh, first of all, does the neighborhood know that it's now designated as a grid? And then do you have increased foot patrol? Do you have increased surveillance? I don't want you to give away all your secrets, but what goes on in a grid that reduces the temperature? So, you know, we we report out uh, every month on our violent crime plan to uh, our public safety committee uh, of our city council. Uh, we have reports that are done by our criminologists. Uh, that's one part when we started the crime plan. We wanted, we wanted to make sure that the crime plan was transparent. Uh, we're out in these communities. Uh, you know, I often say, you know, the first time our communities see us can't be in a moment of crisis. So we're not just out there reducing violent crime. We're trying to also do a lot of positive things. Uh, as hardworking as my our, my CRT units, my patrol units, my SWAT teams, my gang units, my robbery detectives, SWAT teams working in these units to root out the criminal elements. So as equally as hard as my community affairs division working in those same areas to make sure that our community see us. Uh, in a positive light and make sure that we're there in good times. But as I made mention before, the visibility has shown to be very, very important, making sure that we have officers in the epicenter, uh, whether that is in their patrol cars uh, with their lights on, whether that is walking around and just being visible, we've shown that that that, that, has, that has worked. Uh, but initially, and also we, we're, we have intelligence-led policing uh, in trying to use intelligence the best we can to root out the criminal elements and the criminal el enterprises that are operating in those grids and disrupting that. Uh, and we have found that to be incredibly successful uh, because we have the buy-in from our men and women. We have the buy-in from our community. And, you know, I say this, you know, and I said this, I know in your, uh, when we started, it showed when I say there's not a neighborhood in the city of Dallas impacted by crime that I've ever heard the words, we want less of you. Uh, and and it's, it's communities that are impacted by violence that will let me have it 
uh, quite frankly, if I if they feel that I'm not offering them uh, enough police services. And so the community's bought into it. Our men and women have bought into it. You know, they want us to be better. There's no question about it. We need to be in our profession. They will hold us accountable, but they don't want us to go away. Uh, and again, as I mentioned before, that's a precious gift. And those are the type of things we're doing in our grids. But in those grids, you can't stay there forever, can you? I mean, uh, I saw somewhere where it said that the crime typically subsides for 90 days after the police leave a tract. But what what do you do about maintaining the low temperature? Once you've lowered the temperature, how do we keep how do you keep it low? Do you guys stay or do you go? Well, there's two things. And again, a lot of it comes with the second the 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 next two parts of the crime plan. But we reassess every 60 days now. We used to reassess every 90 days at the start of the crime plan, but what we found is that while treating those grids, we saw reductions in violent crime in 60 days, not 90 days. So we reduced the period of treatment in those particular grids uh, to 60 days. And then we reassessed with our criminologists to figure out what other areas in the city are now high ranking in those three categories that I made mention, and then we move. Uh, but certainly, you know, that's that's the fever reducer. Uh, we have not seen uh, a lot of displacement with regards to violent crime, as the data suggests. Uh, very few neighborhoods uh, in, a, in any city are responsible for an inordinate amount of the violent crime that occurs in that city. And so we haven't found a lot of movement when we leave there. Uh, you know, generally speaking, when we start uh, our new cycle of grids, the majority of the previous grids fall off uh, and then we start treating the new grids. And so that's where Place Network Investigation comes in, uh, which is the second part of the crime plan, which is looking at historical areas in the city of Dallas that have been impacted by violent crime. And although the police department is a cog in the wheel, uh, we are not the, the solution to the issues there. We have to look at, let's say as an example, you take an apartment complex. Uh, yes, the police department needs to be there to root out the criminal element and the enterprises that are in that complex for violence, but does it need lighting? Uh, does it need better parking? Does it need a park for the kids to play in? Uh, do the streets need work outside? Do we need programs of mental health? Is there garbage throughout the complex that needs? Do landlords need to be held accountable? And so you start seeing that a lot of other city departments then play a role in trying to make those areas stronger. And we've 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 done that in certain areas. We continue to grow from that perspective. Uh, but then that's also helped. Uh, and so those are things that we've seen in some areas in Dallas that have been historical for decades that have been that have been issues uh, for uh, the, the neighbors and the, and the residents that live in our city. Uh, and so we have found that that has been our primary step in reducing the fever. One of the things you've talked about before, uh, well, repeat offenders are a big source of crime and you've advocated a policy of focused deterrence with these criminals which I guess once again brings in sort of the panoply of social services that you're, you've been talking about with the grids. Uh, how, does, how do you do focused deterrence on repeat criminals? So um, it's interesting. We just had our, our first call-in session just last night on focused deterrence. Uh, we, we have a way to identify individuals that we feel uh, are at most at risk uh, for reoffending individuals involved in gun crime, individuals that are awaiting, uh, that may be awaiting trial for a gun crime, uh, individuals involved in gangs, uh, individuals on probation or parole for violent crimes. Uh, we invited in, uh, we, we put out 38 invites yesterday. We had approximately 25 individuals show up last night for our first call-in session. Uh, and many of them took, uh, took part uh, in the programs and the services that we had. I mean, the, the, the essence of focus deterrence is sending a strong message 
Uh, we 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 enjoy an incredible relationship with our federal partners, uh, with our uh, with our USA of the Northern District, uh, with our district attorney, uh, and we send a very strong message that we're not going to tolerate violence. Uh, my officers are good at what they do, uh, and uh, you know if they want to bet if if they want to continue the life of violence, um, you know they're going to get caught up. Uh, we had individuals that used to be in the life that gave that spoke and gave testimonials that are not anymore. Uh, we had victims speak and we had our services speak. Uh, we need to give people hope. Uh, you know, the reality of it is, is there's there's places here in Dallas that look hopeless. And when you live in hopeless situations, you do hopeless things that then we have to respond to. And so the message to these individuals is if you need it, number one, we're not going to tolerate violence. Uh, do not do not make the mistake of of uh, of thinking that the that 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 we're not going to be strong and that to to make the mistake of thinking that just because uh mistaking kindness for weakness uh, do not mistake kindness for weakness uh, because we're not going to let our community suffer uh and that we're not going to tolerate it but at the same time if you need help if you need housing if you need job training if you need to find a job if you had issues with mental health substance abuse not just for you or your families if you allow us we want to help you because it would behoove us all for you to be successful. Because if these individuals are not successful, regardless of the side of the fence you're on, right? Um, they're not gonna go. They're not gonna go back to prison uh, because they ran a red light uh, or they spit on the sidewalk. They're gonna go back because someone else in our community has been victimized. And we had a lot of individuals uh, uh, take part and take the offer that we had yesterday. Uh, just just them showing up was a great first step. Uh, but if those type of things, those are the type of things that deal with the illness. Uh, we deal with the fever. It's those type of things uh, in that quality of life uh, in, the, in, the, in the services that some individuals in some parts of our community either don't have now or have never had access to that they need to have uh, to build hope uh, and to have that and to have that self-respect and build that. And so, again, as we're the fever reducers, the other things that I just discussed are the things that will deal with the illness. One of the uh, you mentioned quality of life, and one of the issues that comes up with that is the prosecution of misdemeanors. And that was a pretty big topic in Dallas in the last four years when your new progressive prosecutor, John Cruzo, declared he wouldn't prosecute most misdemeanor thefts under $750. And there was video of people running into convenience stores and taking food and stuff. Uh, but after he won re-election in November, he announced he was going to discard the policy. Uh, even while he claimed that it had not impacted the amount of theft one way or the other. So uh, where were you on not prosecuting misdemeanor theft? And were you involved in persuading him to change that policy? Uh, and do you have concerns about mass incarceration and the impacts of jail on people, which is was sort of the driving force behind that in the first place? But what are your thoughts on the change in policy in Dallas of not going after misdemeanor thefts and now doing it? Uh, well, I applaud uh, DA Cruzo for changing that policy. Uh, listen, I come from California uh, and I've seen firsthand on that how, on how that had uh, some negative impacts uh, on our businesses and on our community. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, we need to be uh, mindful with regards to uh, with regards to the sentencing or with regards to the consequences that are there, but to turn a blind eye on those things just doesn't do society or our our business, our society any good. Uh, and so I, I certainly, that was something that actually the DA did on his own. We didn't have many conversations about that. Listen, I try to control what I can control. Uh, and what I tell my men and women all the time is, listen, we may be frustrated with other parts of the criminal justice system that may let us down, 
Uh, but we have to be the one part of the criminal justice system that does not let our communities down. So if we get called 20 times uh, on a call for service uh, for the same individual, then guess what? We go back 20 times because that's what our community expects of us. Uh, but with regards to that, you know, although Judge Cruzeau had that policy with lower lower level misdemeanors and offenses, he certainly has been a great partner with us when it comes to violent crime. And that's something that that I that I boast about, not just locally, but nationally, uh, that I have a great relationship with the DA. Uh, I'm happy that that's changed. Um, you know, I push back a little bit with the the fact that the numbers don't uh, don't bear out the fact that there was more or less theft. Uh, because the reality of it is when businesses don't think that the police or the criminal justice system do anything about it, there is a level of apathy that happens uh, where people may not report it if they don't think anything's going to happen. Uh, and so I don't necessarily keep put my 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 headlights on that. I just put it on the fact that, you know, accountability is a big part, you know, whether it comes to misdemeanor crimes or more violent crime, quite frankly. So you're also president of the major cities chiefs association a group of police executives in major U.S. and Canadian cities. In that role, you can see the big picture. Uh, do you have any theories on why violent crime is rising in America's cities? Well, you know, I'll say generally here, here, here in like, uh, again, in Dallas, uh, and the issues aren't necessarily uh, with my, my DA here in Dallas at all. They're more with individuals on the bench uh, that have made irresponsible decisions in the name of social justice that do not make our community safer uh, with regards to violent crime. Accountability is a big part, and that's something that I hear from my fellow chiefs across the country. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, these individuals committing violent crime, you know, are getting more chances than our victims are getting chances, and that that doesn't sit right with the men and women. It certainly doesn't sit right with our community uh, when individuals are being released uh, back, back in areas for violent crime. That's been an issue. Uh, morale, of the men and women of the department. I mean, let's face it, you know, we talk about it, it's really not the elephant in the room anymore, uh, but for their last few years, as I mentioned, you know, honorable men and women that we need have felt vilified and not supported. Uh, that's a big part of the fact that um, that uh, we, we need our officers to engage at a time when we needed to engage them more. I think, generally speaking, officers have disengaged uh, because, uh, because of the issues that we have to change that. Uh, and that's not just engaging in, in you know, in, in police work and necessarily uh, apprehending criminals, that's engaging in positive things as well. And not to say taking criminals off the street isn't positive because that's what our communities want, but they can't see us in a moment of crisis. And it's incredibly important to balance that. Uh, and so accountability is a big portion. Morale is a big portion. Staffing. Uh, we're in a national staffing crisis. Uh, there's no question about it. And I don't think there's a police chief uh, you know, that uh, that I've spoken to from major cities that won't say those are three major issues, uh, you know, that, that 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 are occurring that has led to an increase in crime. And I really, truly think it's been because we've disengaged uh, and we need to come back and re-engage in our community, both in making sure they don't see us in a moment of crisis uh, and also to ensure that we're doing uh, and rooting out the criminal element from neighborhoods uh, that desperately need it. As head of the major cities chiefs, you signed a letter to Congress in March supporting a ban on assault weapons. Uh, we had Chuck Wexler from Police Executive Research Forum here recently after he had made a plea to chiefs to become more vocal in their support of such a ban. Are you hopeful that such a ban could be enacted again as it was in the 1990s? And do you see chiefs stepping up their advocacy on this? Well, you know, obviously as my role as major city chiefs president, you know, I have to you know, advocate for all the chiefs uh, in the country. Uh, and in Canada, quite frankly, but particularly in this point in the country. Uh, every state's different. 
Uh, that's the reality of it. But, you know, I put my major city, city chief's hat on to ensure that there are sensible uh, restrictions uh, and sensible gun control. That's really the reality that we have. Uh, you know, I'm not a politician. Uh, I'm not a policymaker. I'm a police chief. Uh, and I say this often, I'm a cop first and I'm a chief second. Uh, you know, if you want to ask me questions with regards to what the biggest issues are with violent crime and what we're seeing, I will tell you we're seeing uh, uh, guns and firearms in the hands of criminals. Uh, and we're seeing those criminals not being held accountable. Uh, so to me, that's the biggest part of this. Uh, and so I think uh, uh, being vocal, I respect Chuck Wexler uh, a great deal. Uh, but again, you know, we, we, we stay in our lane. Uh, I'm not a policymaker. Uh, no chief is. Uh, I, if you want to ask me questions about crime and ask me questions of what I'm seeing out in the street, I will tell you that so you can make uh, uh, an educated decision on what you're making. But I think it's important for us to ensure that we do advocate uh, to the extent we can, but also remembering the lane we're in. Uh, and there's policymakers that we need to educate. And if we need to educate them, I have a, I'll have a list of chiefs that can educate on what they're seeing in their communities. Uh, but certainly, uh, we're not politicians and we're not policymakers. Uh, but we are individuals that can give facts to see what's going on on the street. You've mentioned accountability a couple, three times here, and we have a viewer question related to this uh, from Charlotte Simpson in Massachusetts. And Charlotte asks, how is Dallas using restorative justice? I'll point out that restorative justice is practice of getting victims and uh, assailants together or doing diversions for assailants uh, rather than sending them to prison. So how is restorative justice going in Dallas? Well, one of the things that we're doing is obviously, you know, we have some policies uh, regarding, uh, you know, personal use of marijuana and things of that nature that it's not that we ignore it necessarily, but we have more, we have priorities uh, in the department that that are higher than that. And so we don't uh, arrest for those lower level type of marijuana offenses, uh, but that's based on priorities. Uh, it's not based on anything else. It's certainly not ignoring uh, and that that's very limited. Uh, sales of marijuana obviously is not included in that uh, and things and things of that nature and being armed and, uh, and some other things. But you know, one of the things that we're doing, uh, honestly, with restorative justice is working with our community groups uh, and our schools and DISD. I mean, we're working on, I mean, listen, police departments and, and nothing's really changed in law enforcement in the 31 years I've done it. Uh, public safety is about uh, prevention, intervention and suppression. And obviously we do we do suppression as well as we can. Uh, we do intervention uh, uh, decently. Uh, but I think the one thing that we challenge ourselves with is the prevention uh, part of it, right? And really getting into neighborhoods and areas where we know, we know the zip codes here in the city of Dallas, and I'm sure every other city does as well, where uh, there's two factors in those zip codes that we don't want to see. We don't want to see uh, over-incarceration, and we also don't want to see victimization. And so working on that at an early age is incredibly important. Uh, the other thing we're doing, really, our focus deterrence part is 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 somewhat uh, of a way for us to really send a message out because we're trying to get a message out to individuals that we know are most at risk for a life and violent crime, whether they're gonna be individuals that are are committing the violent crime or individuals that are be victimized by it. Because, you know, as we all know in cities, you can be a suspect one day and a victim the next if you're in that life. And we're trying to offer them and working together with our community and CBOs to offer people a better life. I think last night was a perfect example of individuals. They were in custody, uh, but we know they're at, at risk and offering them services to get them on a path to a better life 
is something that absolutely needs to be done. We talk about our grid work and we talk about these other things, but we need to ask cities reinvest in people and places. Uh, and I used to say reinvest in people and places. I'll still say that, but we need to, there's also some places in our cities where we probably haven't invested ever as much as we should have. Uh, and we really need to look at that. I know it's incredibly important here in the city of Dallas uh, because both things go hand in hand. Uh, we need to reinvest in people and places. There's no question about it. But reinvesting in people and places aren't going to necessarily manifest themselves into less people getting shot today or this weekend. So both are necessary. And so from a restorative justice perspective, what we did last night to offer individuals hope and give them opportunities uh, is incredibly important. And that's something we're really proud of. One of the things we mentioned in our introduction was the, the number of police shootings that have occurred around the country, which do not seem to be declining uh, as the years go on. I think some of us thought with body cameras that police knew they were being watched, that they you know, might moderate their behavior. But the number of police, fatal police shootings has not declined over the last six or seven years. What's your thoughts on this? And will we ever see a decline in police shootings? Well, I think two things. I mean, either we look at the incidents where, you know, the police should have done better. There's no question about it. Oftentimes we're our own worst enemy and I'll be the first one to admit it. Uh, but we really say that's a really small percentage, Chief. Is that a really small percentage, what you just said? I, I believe it's a small percentage. I do. I mean, the one thing that we seldom talk about is the hundreds of thousands of contacts, the thousands of calls involving weapons uh, that that all of us deal with where a shooting doesn't happen. Uh, we we generally talk about, obviously, the ones most impactful, and we have to, because we have to be better by utilizing those. Uh, but we we seldom look at, you know, the myriad of calls that we handle that don't turn deadly and don't have a shooting. The other dynamic that we have to see is also behavior, not just the behavior of the officer, but behavior of the individual. We generally talk about the amount of shootings that we've had, but seldom do we talk about behavior. And I'll give you a prime example. Here in the city of Dallas, we've uh, gotten into four officer-involved shootings this year. And so instead of looking at the number, what I'll say, each one of those incidents, uh, the individual threatened my officers with a firearm. And so, you know, obviously, you know, we don't want to have officer-involved shootings. Uh, you know, I mean, our community doesn't want it. My men and women don't want that. Uh, you know, that's, that's, it's tragic when those occur. But we need to see behavior on both sides improve. And I'll tell you from an officer's perspective, when we talk about the myriad of incidents that our men and women respond to where a deadly confrontation doesn't occur, but then we also need to look at the behavior of our community members, our community, the individuals we're contacting and to see their behavior as well. Uh, we've also seen obviously a rise uh, you know, in, in violence against police officers also, which that's seldom spoken about. And so it's a conversation that needs to be had on both sides to hold ourselves both, uh, our officers accountable, uh, that I think our uh, my fellow police chiefs have done a very good job doing, but also holding and looking at ourselves as a community uh, to see how we're how we're interacting, what things are we involved with, and you know the threats on the men and women that sacrifice every day for this country. Do you have examples? I mean, do you have video or or have incidents where officers have de-escalated? Uh, we've done some stories over the years that show officers who've been trained in uh, not shooting. And is that something that you're referring to here in the incidents where you encounter people and violence doesn't happen? Well, 
Well, I think it's more, listen, when an officer, you know, has to use deadly force, obviously there's a lot of uh, decisions that they have, they have to make, whether their own personal decisions and policy decisions and things of that nature. But absolutely, there's example after example of de-escalation. And you know what, as police chiefs, we need to do better. We need to do a better job of being able to, myself included, all of us need to do a better job of highlighting those incidents when, when we have de-escalated situations, when we have used uh you know uh techniques that we've been taught where we have used distance where we have used a plan where we have used uh less lethal uh you know incidents where supervisors have been on scene and been able to give direction we do need to do more a better job of giving those examples because i will tell you they happen every day every day at every police department de-escalation is occurring and you're not seeing those incidents happen uh granted that's not saying we're perfect uh we're gonna make mistakes there's no question about it uh, we have to hold ourselves accountable. We always have to think when when we're wrong, we're wrong, and we have to hold ourselves accountable. But when our men and women are right, uh, we have to we have to be loud about that as well. Uh, and we can't let we can't let that narrative uh, run away with the fact that we all know the majority of our men and women are honorable, uh, and they're doing a tremendous job under a lot of stress. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't get better. And we're constantly looking at ways to get better, whether through technology. Uh, whether through de-escalation tactics, uh, whether through more su better supervision. Uh, and so we're all working on that and th that'll never end. Uh, you know, in 31 years I've been here, I know it was here when I started in the early 90s and it'll be here long after I leave. Uh, that it's, there's, this is, uh, this game will never end. Uh, we're always, the goalposts will always be moving. And we as chiefs and as police departments need to rise to that level of expectation. And so that's something that we continue to work together. I know my major chiefs do that. Uh, we do it together and collectively, uh, and those are things that we need to continue to work on. And we will continue to watch. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Chief Garcia, for joining us today. Uh, it was absolutely my honor. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and hopefully, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.